Visa's down, Bank of America has even more legal charges, and Warren Buffett just has so much money. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. Right here next to me is David Hansen. It is indeed Halloween, and if you can't tell, I am dressed up. For the Harold and Kumar go to White Castle fans out there, I am extreme sports punk. That is a is a very niche reference. Very niche. I, I like that you dressed up as well. Uh, you are an investment an investment banking analyst after hours. After I took the tie off. You took the tie off. Fair you're enough. ready. You're ready to, to to be there for the night. My shirt has orange on it. Orange and black. That's. That's Halloween. Oh, yeah. That's as risky as I go. You nailed it. You nailed it, David. All right, let's move on to the headlines. The first headline of the day is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Bank of America says U.S. could file civil suit on mortgage securities. Uh, This is upping the amount of money that Bank of America may see for legal liabilities. It's like the money pinata that never ends with the the big banks. The bad news is, is that there may be more money uh, that Bank of America has to set aside than yep. it originally thought. The good news is, is that within the article, the article talked about more parties pulling out uh, their opposition to the $8.5 billion private MBS settlement that's currently in court. Uh, that would be good news. If, I mean, if, if parties keep pulling out their opposition and, and that goes through, that would definitely be good news for shareholders. Yeah, that's one that's kind of been lost in all this, all this legal stuff. People have lost focus about that lawsuit that's pending right now. Uh, yeah, this is referring to potentially having to set aside more money. They filed their 10Q yesterday, mm-hmm. and they came out and said, we might have to set aside more legal reserve, or we might have to pay out more than what we've reserved for, and it could be up to $5.1 billion. This sounds very similar to what we heard from J.P. Morgan when they filed their 10Q the previous quarter. I think it was in excess between 0 and $6.2 billion-ish, so we saw something very similar to J.P. Morgan. They did I think have to dip in in excess of those reserves. So maybe Bank of America has to, but in the long run, I don't think it's a huge, huge deal. Okay, headline number two. Headline number two. Going to Bloomberg, Visa profit matches estimates as U.S. retail sales strengthen. That's the headline on Visa. We also saw MasterCard report earnings. Both of the businesses still doing very well. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone matches estimates there. I think Visa's stock is down today, but that's not necessarily an indication that the business is performing poorly. This is stock is just priced to perfection because the business has been basically perfect since it came public a couple of years ago. Same with MasterCard, similar results. Uh, that stock's up, though. It is. It is. Okay. MasterCard. Or last I checked. I guess MasterCard, the headline there was that they benefited from a stronger euro. That's not something you can count on every quarter, so I wouldn't be holding on to that, that the euro is a little bit stronger. Those things ebb and flow. But both businesses performing quite well. Um, If you're a shareholder, I think you continue to be happy with both of these. What's interesting about the MasterCard headline is the international exposure. So we we talked a little bit uh, last week, I think it was, about Visa's exposure overseas and, and, how, and how strong that is. But what's interesting is that in terms of the business exposure, the percentage of business ex- exposure to the U.S. versus overseas, Visa got about, this is 2012, $5.7 billion in revenue from the U.S., rest of the world $4.5 billion, so mm-hmm. most of that toward the U.S. MasterCard, on the other hand, $2.9 billion from the U.S., $4.5 billion from other countries. 
So basically, they're looking at the same amount of revenue coming in from overseas, and Visa's just got the much stronger position within the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, in particular, when we think about spending overseas, Europe, obviously a big part of that. Europe has been... Uh, in the dumps, we can say, over the past few years. You can say that. But eventually, we're going to see a recovery there. Maybe that benefits MasterCard more than it does Visa uh, for the overall business. Right. Final headline? Final headline, number three, to Bloomberg again. Buffett's $40 billion cash pile provides acquisition fuel. A lot of cash at Berkshire Hathaway. Always a lot of cash at Berkshire Hathaway. Buffett likes to keep some of that around, but obviously some of it needs to be redeployed. From a shareholder perspective, with all of that cash sitting around as cash, it's not doing anything for you. So it's good when Buffett goes out and he makes these big deals, buys companies, uh, so that they can be generating new cash, new capital for, uh, for the company. This is a high-class problem, though. Um, but, it's, but it's a problem nonetheless. And, and when we look out there, Valuations are high. The stock market has been on a run, and in particular, consumer discretionary stocks and consumer staple stocks, which is a, an area that, that Buffett has been known to go shopping in, those are more expensive than the rest. I, I, I agree, and you cannot look at, at Berkshire with a one-year time period. And People talk about Apple should do this with their cash. Nobody can tell Warren Buffett what he should do with his cash. I think this guy has earned the reputation that he knows what he's doing. And we saw during the crash, he's the one who had the cash on hand to go out and make all these sweetheart deals with Goldman Sachs, with GE. So you can't look at this with a one-year period. If you're buying Berkshire Hathaway, if you own Berkshire Hathaway, this needs to be a long-term holding because if you just hold it for, if you only want to hold it for a year, that's pretty foolish in my opinion, lowercase f. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense. This is a long-term holding. You're banking on Buffett's brains and continuing to build book value, and that takes multiple years. Challenge accepted. To, on tomorrow's show, we will make suggestions for Buffett on what he should do with that cast. Okay, we'll see. All right. Nobody can tell him what to do. <laughs> we will tell him what to do. Moving on to the next round, rapid fire headlines here. Wall Street Journal, the Fed, my favorite topic. Your favorite. I'm talking about the Fed. Fed opts to stay course for now. We, find, we saw the FOMC say... Hey, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. This was a surprise to, I think, maybe no one. Uh, with the with the government shutdown, with the debt ceiling, everybody was saying, hey, maybe the Fed made, made the right decision not tapering in September. Looks like it's going to stay the course again. I'm not paying too much attention to it. It's a nice sideshow. Okay. Over at the FT, new Danske chief abandons profit targets and reveals job cuts. Danske Bank, this is a, is a Denmark-based bank. Maybe surprising that I bring this up. Uh, Danske and, and, and Denmark in general, the, the banking markets were hit a little bit harder than the rest of Scandinavia. The, the banks in Sweden held up very well through the financial crisis, but they all fared very well compared to a lot of the major U.S. banks. What I find interesting about this is that Danske's new CEO is cutting back uh, return on equity target from 12% to 9%. And so I think from a big picture perspective, when we think about Wells Fargo, when we think about J.P. Morgan, when we think about Citigroup and the challenges that they face from a, from a low returns, low interest rate standpoint, this is a global thing. Everybody's, every bank around the globe mm-hmm. is dealing with this. 9%. That's not, a, not a, that high of a bar there, but I guess they know what they're doing. Well, it's also, it's also a new CEO. There you set, go. Set the, set the exactly. bar low and, and outperform. Final rapid fire headline. This one was from... Maybe Market Watch. I don't even know. Uh, it was just what to watch for in AIG earnings. AIG. I hope people aren't saying that when they're reading your articles. <laughs> AIG like, reports earnings this afternoon being Thursday. What to watch for is 
the business. That's all I really care about with AIG, and they have to start performing as Crazy a business. Crazy comments from Robert Ben Moshe. Maybe. Uh, that's usually something you can bank on there. Uh, when you look at its valuation, its price to book multiple was in the basement earlier this year. This year, that multiple has expanded 50%. So the expectations are higher for AIG as a business, and for the stock to be successful over the next five to 10 years, it needs to grow its book value. So you just want to see what are the insurance operations doing? Are they doing that? Are they making progress? That's what I care about. I don't care about the financial products division. I know they're going to wind it down. I have confidence that they're going to do that. I care about the business. Well, all right. Good. With Halloween in mind, we are going to think about some scary stocks. I've got a scary stock. Apparently, you've got a scary stock. Why don't you start us off? When you look at the financial sector, mm-hmm. what is the one scariest stock to you out there right now? My scary stock is Green Dot. Whoa. Yes, Green Dot. Uh, so not a bank, not a traditional financial-ish company. They pr- provide prepaid cards, mm-hmm. uh, which you can get a direct deposit on. You can reload at retailers. The business, the competition scares me. I mean, the business has, is performing well. It has performed well. It has some, some pretty serious backers. Sequoia Capital owns around 8% of They're the of pretty this smart business. guys. They are some smart guys over there. Uh, they've had good cash flow generation over their history, but the competition is very scary. We've seen American Express come out with the Bluebird card. It has lower fees than the Green Dot card. And when you're catering to the low end of the market, in the long run, I think consumers are going to go to the low-cost option. Why pay a higher fee with Green Dot? Yes, they have the brand and the first-mover advantage. But if you're a low-end consumer, you're going to go to the cheapest option. The valuation doesn't look crazy here. And I think it could be a a buyout target potentially. It's been on a nice run, though, hasn't it? It has. It has. Um, I think it could be a buyout target considering who are some of the backers here. I think they could shop it around if they needed to. It doesn't look expensive, but over the long run, I'm not crazy about the business and the competition. So I'm scared by Green Dot. If they shop it, who do you think a likely buyer would be? I don't know. It, It could really go to multiple companies here. It could go to a financial company. It could go to some sort of technology company. So. Mm. Don't have an exact name for you. It could be a wide thing, but I think that's probably the best case scenario here is a buyout from someone. I know Discover is one of your uh, a company that you really like. Do you think Discover could buy a company like this? The thing is, I think Discover would. The make thing it. is with the business. I think this is a business that you don't necessarily need to go you out and buy someone. Own. You can build your own. You've seen American Express do that. Discover has the capabilities to do this as well. So that's why I'd, I'm not crazy about it. I don't think there's a lot of moats to this business. Gotcha. Okay, for me. I've, a scary group to me right now, in, and again, we're talking about the financial space, is the equity REITs. We, we talk a lot. Oh, yeah, you know it. Of course, the you equity REITs. We talk a lot here about the mortgage REITs. The mortgage REITs uh, are real estate investment trusts that buy and sell mortgage paper and, and mortgage bonds. Equity REITs go out and they buy buildings. They buy things, and they, they have streams of income that come in from those things, whether it's an apartment building, uh, a mall. Um, strip mall, all, all this kind of stuff, hospitals uh, and, and, and other healthcare-related facilities, they get the streams of income from that. They pay big dividends to investors and get favorable tax treatment. That sounds good. What's, the, what's so scary? About it does that? sound good. And, and, and they are good businesses to own over the long term. But with interest rates so low, a lot of investors have been looking for a way to get income. And equity REITs typically have nice dividends. And so there's been a, uh, a flood of investors heading to the equity REITs for these dividends. And as a result, the dividends have gone down. The valuations have gone up. And so they're still solid, good businesses. But the valuations and what you're actually getting for them just aren't that attractive. So when I look at a business like Simon Property Group, 
uh, owner of malls around the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, strong business, but you're looking at it trading at above eight times its tangible book value, which is rich. Mm-hmm. Sounds rich. It is rich. And it's it's paying about a 3% dividend, which for an equity REIT where you're looking prime, I mean, there's there's a growth aspect to it for sure. Um, but growth is a little bit difficult because they, they're required as a real estate investment trust to pay out most of their income in a form of a dividend. So what you're counting on for the most part is the dividend. Mm-hmm. The 3% dividend, again, that's going to fluctuate with price. So the higher the price of the stock goes, the lower your dividend goes. So 3% dividend says something about the valuation. Uh, healthcare REIT, uh, the ticker symbol there is HCN. Uh, another one that's a very popular one, 4.6% dividend. Again, it's just not terribly attractive to me, um, given given what you're expecting out of a uh, out of a REIT. Uh, an American Tower. You talked about this one. Yesterday. Uh, you pitched it yesterday. There's more of a growth aspect there. So if you're you're into a REIT for for growth purposes, mm-hmm. maybe there's a call there. But again, I, I think it looks expensive, and certainly the dividend is nothing to write home about. With the, with the first two, with, with Simon and healthcare, I think investors need to remember, yes, 4, 45 3% might sound good today when we're in this low interest rate environment, but if you remember the times when interest rates are higher, that's not going to look so hot right. if you're able to get bonds that yield more than that d- down the road. Yeah, if, you, so. if, you can get a, if you can get a bond, a relatively risk-free bond that's going to give you 3 4%. It doesn't make much yeah, sense. Yeah, why, why, why are you going to do this? I agree. A um, little bit more of a growth aspect, like I said. Um, what I will say, you, you just mentioned AIG um, in, in the last segment. Uh, I'll point that out. I was just on Market Foolery right before this, another great Motley Fool podcast, and uh, AIG was my treat stock. We did trick stocks and treat mm-hmm. stocks. AIG, AIG was my treat stock. We have been talking a lot about uh, low valuation big banks, but those big banks have been paying out all these legal settlements. AIG has that low valuation. Hasn't had the big legal liabilities. I think uh, that's a really good-looking stock right now. Next up, yesterday, for the first time, we had an email address for the radio show for listeners to to write in, Mm -hmm. ask questions, give us feedback, make comments, whatever. Uh, That email address is WTMI, for where the money is, WTMI at fool.com. We got two emails. The first one was from Carl Pluta. I hope I'm saying that right. And the email reads, I currently have 30% of my portfolio in the financial sector, and I am holding 20% in cash. Uh, His insurance holdings are Berkshire Hathaway, Aflac, Prudential. Uh, In banking, he has uh, Wells Fargo and Huntington Bank shares. Among the REITs, Annalee and DX. I actually, I'm not sure what DX is. That's Dynex. Dynex, there you go. Okay. Uh, And then he says, but I love the current pricing on JP Morgan, Key Corp, and Citi. When is putting too much in one sector uh, outweigh the opportunities? That's a good question. Um, Diversification question. So obviously we can't give specific advice to, right. to Carl here for, for legal reasons. Or, or anybody else. Um, exactly. Maybe I can give you, you some advice. I won't um, <laughs> But uh, I, I guess a high level, all those stocks that you mentioned, I'm fairly bullish on, on most of those stocks. You own Berkshire Hathaway, right? I do not own Berkshire Hathaway. You don't own Berkshire? Why don't you own Berkshire Hathaway? Do you own uh, Wells Fargo? I do not. You do own Annalee. I do. You at least own Annalee. Uh, but m- even if I don't all, own all of them, I think those are all very solid businesses. Nothing stood out to me as saying, hmm, interesting. Uh, so I think those are all pretty solid holdings there. And f- first glance, if it, was, if it was me and I was 30% in the financial sector, which in my personal portfolio, I, I am around that percentage. So I, I can relate and I do agree with him that J.P. Morgan and Citi look attractive right now. Um, so personally, uh, 
I wouldn't feel too uncomfortable because I think you have to go where you're comfortable. It sounds like he's a, he's comfortable with financial companies there and mm-hmm. understanding the business. If you think there's opportunity there, I, I I would feel comfortable upping that exposure if I thought that's where the opportunity was. What do you think? I, I'm kind of I'm in the same in the same boat. There are a lot of there are a lot of disclosures and and and. Uh, things we could say here. It depends on who you are, where Correct. you are in your retirement plans, how much risk you're willing to take, all that kind of stuff. For me personally, uh, and, and then it's, it's also a matter of how, like you said, how comfortable you are, how much you understand a given industry, um, and how comfortable you are with, with risk and, and diversification. For me personally, I think you got to go where the opportunity is. Um, there's a risk in too much diversification. And there have been a variety of people that have said that diversification diversification is basically a sign that you don't really know what you're doing. Too much diversification suggests you don't know what you're doing. And there's nothing wrong with that, but if you're going to go that direction, have a ton of different stocks, go with an index fund. Mm -hmm. Get an index fund. Save on the transaction. Exactly. And and very low fees. Index funds are a great vehicle for for a lot of different people. But if you're going to go to the direction of picking individual stocks, I say go where the opportunities are. Uh, I'm a big fan of Bruce Berkowitz. He does that to a big extent. Huge positions in AIG, in Bank of America, um, and, and, and Buffett. I mean, if you look at uh, Berkshire's portfolio, Berkshire's portfolio is almost 50%. This is the equity portfolio. Mm-hmm. Almost 50% in financial companies. Mm-hmm. So obviously we see where uh, Buffett sees a lot of opportunity also. I think it's easy after the financial crisis, we lump all of these financial companies and saying they all have the same risk profile. I'm not sure where he's allocated amongst those companies, but they have different risk profiles as well. The risks at Berkshire Hathaway are much different than Annaly Capital. Those aren't necessarily, just because they're financial companies, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean they're completely correlated. Uh, you look at Berkshire Hathaway, that's almost more of an index fund, like we just mentioned. That's, right, yeah, yeah. That's Berkshire, kind of yeah. betting on the U.S. economy with manufacturing, with energy, with financial companies. So each of those are very different businesses. They're all financial companies, but I don't think... I'm not scared by yeah. the risk profile. I don't think those all are the exact same business there. It's not like he's buying seven community banks in Ohio. Then I would say, yeah, maybe that's a little bit too concentrated with community banks in Ohio. But he's spanning the financial sector here. So even though it's 30% in those segments, it's really not that much. Fair there, enough. there you have it. Uh, we had another email here from Tom Carter. Tom asks, any recommendations on the best books or websites to read to learn more about understanding financial companies, especially in analyzing their financials? Uh, th- this is a tough one. I, I think to, to a very large extent, like anything else, this comes just doing it over and over, over time. Um, so one of my favorite ways to do this. One of my favorite resources over time has just been the annual reports, the other SEC filings of banks, of financial companies. Uh, Also, the uh, earnings conference calls are a great thing to tune into or get a transcript if you can. That's a great way to learn. Uh, In the insurance business, uh, one of the books that I've I've always really loved is called Against the Gods. That's Peter L. uh, Bernstein. Uh, Bernstein also has another book, A Primer on Money, Banking, and Gold, which is uh, good. It it's, feels a little dated. It, it is a little bit dated, but it's still a decent uh, overview of banking. Um, for mortgage REITs, again, that's a popular sector, something we've talked a lot about. Two Harbors Investor Relations website has webinars on it mm-hmm. that give overviews of the business. Uh, I think those are very good, a good learning resource. I'm going to go, give them a book here. You gave them some, some prime resources. I'm going to go with The Lost Bank, which chronicles the story of Washington Mutual. So this isn't going to get into 
how financial gets into how work. to destroy it. Yeah, destroy so you can you can kind of understand what you don't want to do with a bank. So I mm-hmm. think that's a good read. Uh, you can kind of get some of the personality behind banking. So that's a book that I would recommend. There are a couple books on AIG. Speaking of, there are a couple books on AIG and, and its crisis-related problems that give a an interesting perspective on. That's kind of an idiosyncratic uh, situation, but at the same time, talks about the, the insurance operations right. as well. Well, we love the emails. Keep them coming. Yeah, uh, that's WTMI at fool.com. Uh, moving on from there, game for the day is Halloween version of Fool in the Blank. Uh, David, why don't you give us the first? Well, the scenario. first one's not too Halloween y, but we can throw it up. We can throw it up anyway. It is Blank will be the best performing <laughs> credit card stock so over scary. the next 10 years. Fool in the blank. I'm going. I'm going to go with Visa. Uh, I'm going to go with Visa just because I think that's the. I think that's the best business here, and and I think Visa has a lock on the market. It's it's a little bit of a tough call because you say, well, it's a it's a very expensive stock, and it is an expensive stock. But when you look over the course of ten years, I think the the valuation difference isn't going to make as much of a difference as the outperformance of the business itself. Um, the the big risk there is that the um, the landscape changes, that, that the electronic payments um, kind of hurts Visa's business. I unfortunately have to agree with you. I'm go- oh, I'm going with Visa that's too. scary. Now I'm, that's I'm going scary. with Visa too. And we'll when move, you start agreeing with me, we'll move on problems. to the next one. All right. The next one is blank is the scariest thing on bank balance sheets. What is the scariest thing out there? What are you terrified of? There's got to be on the, the interesting. I didn't think about this before. It's got to be on bank balance sheets. On bank balance sheets, right? Yes. Um, I'm going to say this is sort of on bank balance sheets, and this is U.S. banks' balance sheets uh, derivatives. And, and, and it's not it's not for the reasons that you might think that derivatives can go bad, financial weapons of mass destru- destruction, etc. Uh, it's the fact that. Um, that European companies, companies around the world, have to disclose not their net derivative position, but their gross derivative position, and that makes their balance sheets look much more asset-heavy. U.S. banks don't have to do that. If that changed, uh, that would optically make uh, U.S. banks look very different. I'm going a little more specific. I'm going student loans, and these aren't on a ton of bank balance sheets, but we mentioned Discover earlier. Mm -hmm. I think around 12% of their loan portfolio is student loans. The non-performing part of that portfolio is ticking up a little bit. The delinquencies there don't like to see that. This is a space that obviously gets a ton of media coverage. It seems warranted uh, with all these student loans out there. They're the one bank that's really charging into this industry as the big guys are stepping out of the industry. So it's not scary. I don't think it's going to take Discover down by any means, mm-hmm. but not wouldn't love to be in the student loan business. So I think that's... Okay, you, g- you gave a stock. I ought to give a stock real quickly to J.P. Morgan, huge derivative exposure. Uh, if there was any sort of change, that would change uh, J.P. Morgan's balance sheet more than the rest. Moving on, to finish out the Halloween episode uh, on the Twitter sphere, we are running short on time. David, speed it up. Get us through this. All right, speed it up. The first one, the first one is from CNBC. <laughs> the best and brightest are turning away from Wall Street. Are they? They, well, oh, according not. to CNBC, 20, 27% of HBS grads went to finance uh, this past year. Uh, and CNBC says, even in the years immediately after the financial crisis, the sector's share of Harvard MBAs never fell below 31%. Uh, these grads are, are increasingly going to tech and telecom. Uh, i got to say that this is a good thing. It's, it's a bad thing maybe for some banks, but I think it's a good thing for the economy in the bigger picture. There you go. Tweet number two. we got Lawrence D. Levine. I think that's how you say it. You, uh, <laughs> Illustria 
A lot, of, a lot of tough things to pronounce here. Illustrious is one of at least six commodity hedge funds to close in the last two years. Others could follow. Uh, what I think is interesting here is a lot of people like to laugh at financial innovation, but I think to some extent, particularly in the trading operations, we do have to think about financial companies like a Goldman Sachs in sort of a similar way as a tech company because they have to continually innovate. They have to continually come up. What's the trade now? What's the area we should be in? Commodities were hot. Now they're not. Uh, interest rates uh, come and go. Uh, fixed income trading we saw was bad this quarter. Uh, mortgage-backed securities, other structured securities, great before the financial crisis, terrible during the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is a, a, a matter of innovation when it comes to trading. And so having a diversification among different strategies that you can switch in and out of, I think is a good place to be. All right. Last tweet of the day of Halloween is from Redfin. Redfin report, homes near cemeteries sell for more. We're dead serious. I see what you did there, Redfin. You're dead serious. <laughs> dead. Are, are you buying a home near a cemetery? I was going to ask you that. I, I would I not. Already, I already own one. <laughs> I own, it's on the cemetery. It's, it's on the cemetery. Gra- it's very quiet. Do you have it's a very plot? peaceful. Do you, do, you, uh, do you have a cemetery plot? I do not have a cemetery you, you haven't. You haven't planned that far yet? Not quite yet, no. So you do own a house by cemetery, no cemetery Just plot. for the quietness. Just for the quietness. That's actually one of the things that the Redfin article noted, is that cemeteries are quiet neighbors. Not surprised. All right. Um, are we forgetting anything? Our Twitter. Our Twitter, Twitter yes. Uh, at TMF Financials. Tweeted us. Comments, questions, anything else. Uh, same with the email address. Say it one more time. WTMI at fool.com. That is our email address. I am staying in character. You can, take, you can take us out. I will chug the Mountain Dew as you take us out. All right. While Matt chugs that Mountain Dew, we will be back here tomorrow, Friday, We look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. That is awful. (laughs)